from the Medical Republic, I'm Francis Wilkins, and this is The Tea Room. So what makes a good leader? Someone who can manage a crisis and show vision when things are a little more normal is one answer. The RACGP is looking for its own leader. Nominations for the college's next president recently opened, and joining us in the tea room today is someone who's put their hand up for the role. The incumbent president, adjunct professor Karen Price, is the voice of a profession that's committed but in crisis. There are, of course, long-standing challenges. There's the billing structure, how to stem the decline of a rural and regional workforce, and how to improve indigenous healthcare. So with the profession exhausted and demoralized, who'd want the job? Well, one person is Dr. Brad Murphy. Brad has had a long career as a GP supervisor. He's a proud Camilleroy man. And early in the year, he was awarded a medal of the Order of Australia. Brad, welcome to the Tea Room. And thanks for joining us for a chat and a bit of a yarn. Uh, Yama, Francis, it's great to be with you, buddy. Fantastic. So look, I gather you've got a bit of a, a story to tell. Tell us a bit about yourself first and also why you're running for RACGP president. Uh, thanks, mate. I, I think it's interesting. See, I, I come from a mixed heritage, like many of us, um, Irish Aboriginal. And uh, and uh, I think the thing to uh, to realise is both those cultures are a bit of storytellers and, you know, one, one might be a bit more humorous than the others. But uh, I was keen to share with you a bit of a story to sort of phase why so that you actually can see why not I would want to be the, the president. And so... Um, I was born in a little country town of Gunnedah in northwest New South Wales and it's beautiful territory and that's where my Camilleroy heritage stems from. You know, my, uh, my mother was a nurse and my father worked in the abattoir at the time, ultimately moving on to sulphide and becoming a painter. You know, my grandfather was a World War II veteran and passed from his war injuries uh, after his return. But my grandmother was certainly the, the matriarch of the family and she's my Camilleroy connection. And she instilled in me a very strong passion for community service and community spirit. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's where it all goes from. And I don't have a lot of connection with my family beyond that because we were uh, one, one example of uh, the stolen generation in that um, my family basically falsified documents and, and hid from society uh, to avoid being stolen. And, and that was uh, by uh, being uh, cattle drovers on the, uh, the stock routes of, um, of New South Wales country. And uh, hopefully they weren't cattle duffers, but... Uh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so that's been an influence, presumably, and maybe your career, why you're running for president, and maybe even your vision for the RACGP. Oh, you know, absolutely. I, I think the thing is, you know, I've had, I've had a long career that, you know, was certainly the road less travelled, which is certainly what uh, a lot of um, First Nations uh, GPs, doctors, and people generally might have had. You know, I, I haven't finished high school. Uh, I left in year 10. Uh, my uh, maths teacher at the time suggested I uh, wouldn't amount to anything, so I should leave and go and work at the BHP. We were living in Newcastle at the time. And, you know, I later found out he was going through a marriage breakup. But it goes to show you know, the effect of, of those comments and uh, and the likes on people. And um, I had the opportunity of having that discussion. He actually went on and became a doctor uh, some years later, and that's where I, I caught up with him again. 
I've had an amazing career as a medic in the Navy. I served during the Great Peace, so it wasn't conflict. And uh, I had the opportunity of doing ride-alongs with the intensive care paramedics in Sydney at the time. I just, you know, watching my first ever patient wake up on the end of a needle from a heroin overdose on Narcan was just, you know, how could you not say this is what I want to do with my life? And so I did that. And you talked about managing crisis and disasters. I've lived through the Newcastle earthquake and the Strathfield massacre, and I've had more than my fair share of, uh, of trauma through that. But, um, you know, it's a, just such a great opportunity to do that stuff as you go through. I got very, very sick when uh, I had uh, Ross River fever on the background of not long having glandular fever, and I had to give up work. And I was looking for a rehabilitation process. And I opened the QTAC guide thinking I had a real passion for um, multimedia. And I opened it on the brand new med school, first in 20 years, JCU in Townsville. And I thought that was certainly, you know, that was a message. And uh, so I applied and I became one of the first Aboriginal um, Torres Strait Islander uh, students to go through the JCU program back in 2000. Since then, I've had the opportunity of starting my own general practice out in Eidsvold, where I was still a registrar in the RVTS program and uh, and ran the medical um, uh, the practice as well as the uh, the hospital. You know, only three years out from med school, and um, but it was the strength that came from my paramedic days that um, you know helped us stave off some of those absolute uh, you know, fear mongering times when you're looking after um, you know major trauma and what have you, often uh, on your own with people who. Uh, are equally sort of outside their comfort zone. And that, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of this journey. In 2007, I was invited by uh, Vasantha Pretham to come on board with the commencement of the National Standing Committee on Aboriginal uh, Health. And I became the, uh, the first uh, chair of that organisation within RACGP when I was still a registrar. Some of my dreams, one was to start the faculty, the National Faculty of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health building upon the um, the National Standing Committee. And the other was to look at the college gown and ways that we might, you know, celebrate the traditional lands on which we practice the art of medicine as general practitioners. And, you know, he inspired me not to do it himself. He inspired me to have the passion to actually go and do it. And we lobbied and, um, and you know, the faculty began and, uh, uh, we also had the opportunity of um, of influencing the college gown, so it uh, has the uh, um, First Nations uh, pattern through the uh, the red imprinted there, and also the uh, the colourful sashes that our uh, First Nations uh, fellows get to uh, to wear in celebration of their achievement. So, mate, what I wanted to share with you out of that story is this journey has all been about getting to this point. It's not about why. I want to be the president. It's about why wouldn't I want to be the president? This has been an absolutely amazing journey, carving away. I'm surrounded by amazing leaders. And look, the other two guys that have put up their hands to run would both do an awesome job. So, you know, it's not about that competitive nature. It's about the time's right. Mm. Let's go a bit further with that passion you have for Indigenous health, Indigenous healthcare professionals and so on. If you were to take on this role, what would be the next stage you'd be looking to pursue with Aboriginal affairs? Because we know the gap's not closed. It's nowhere near closed. Uh, what, what would you do next? Well, I think that's, you know, if we think about that from one perspective, uh, Francis, that if we actually do... First Nations health well. If we resource First Nations health well, you don't put that equipment 
back on the shelf. You don't put that knowledge, you know, back in the back of your mind when you see the next patient. So if we actually do this really well, closing the gap in one perspective becomes much harder because the proudest thing for me is doing this well means that we actually drive the healthcare of a whole nation. And so effectively closing the gap becomes a bit difficult, albeit that the healthcare of the whole nation advances significantly. And one of the proposals, and I truly believe in we need to move away from universal bulk billing, but the problem with that, of course, for marginalised and vulnerable communities and individuals is that if we don't have bulk billing opportunities for particularly our First Nations people in rural and remote, that's going to be a disincentive for them engaging with healthcare. And, you know, we've just thrown all this money at trying to get, you know, remote communities to engage in COVID vaccination and the likes. We don't need to be wedging a gap there at a time when we really need to be bringing it together. So I think that's really important. So I I think we need to rethink the business models available to general practice. And what does that look like? We need to work with a government that in 1975 set up Medicare. They have a vested interest in making this successful. One of the major problems that I see is that I don't think that the Australian community understood um, how the Commonwealth worked and uh, before uh, COVID and they, I don't think people realised how uh, how strong um, and how much power the states actually had until we had COVID and the closing of the borders and the likes. And while ever we have um, disunity by having different parties in, in, uh, in, in power between federal and state, this divide we have between general practice essentially being run by federal and the hospital system being run by state, you know, we've got to find a way to marry that up because otherwise we're, we've got silo mentality. So the RACGP has already had its first meeting with the new health minister, and it, it was predictably quite cordial. But as a president of the RACGP, you become automatically a, a political figure. How would you manage the relationship with the government, not just the federal government, but also with the states, given everything that the college needs to achieve? I think that as we move forward, we need to find ways to engage with those politicians. But we need to remember that the college traditionally was about education and standard. But it wasn't until recently that I saw while I sat on college council for those six years, as the membership um, dollar uh, subscription rose, not just for us, but also for AMA and for RDAA and AIDA that I'm a member of, it's a lot of money each year that we put out before we put anything on the table at home, pay the rent. Um, so I think that as we think about that, you know, the membership started to ask more of the college, and rightly so, and we started to get more into that lobbying group. It's difficult when you ask the people who fund you and then to, to, for more money for that and then challenge them on some of these others. So it's tricky, but I think we're really good at what we do. I think we've done really well to grow that recently. Um, Karen has certainly done a great job. It's fair enough that Mark Butler's a bit cordial to start with. He's still trying to find his feet in, in amongst that as well. It's it's different from going from opposition to uh, uh, to being in, uh, in 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 power as such. But I, I see this as being you know really um, a great opportunity. You know, the government on election night came out in favour and acknowledging the Uluru statement from the heart. And I think that that just gives such an opportunity for us to leverage off that, to work with them. Like I say, they've got a vested interest. Medicare is their idea. It's their baby. They don't want to see it sort of fail under their watch. 
but um, but it is, mate. I mean, you know, five point one percent increase in CPI, one point one, uh, sorry, one point six percent for Medicare. Like, it's not rocket science. This is kindergarten maths. The problem is, it gets gets worse because the five point one percent is actually bigger than that. Because while we're still talking, costs are going up. You know, we we've had a distraction from the way that we do business. So the chronic disease items, which traditionally help us, um, you know, earn earn a little bit more money for that that service provision. We've been distracted from that doing the COVID stuff, so we've earned less there. We've had to spend more money on PPE and, and other changes in practice and respond to these constant barrage of changes that we've been thrust with, often without any sort of full notice. And that's no good. Look, and, and the, you know, the thing is, people complain about paying more for the GP. KFC have had three price rises this year and have changed their lettuce yeah, the iceberg lettuce is now 40% cabbage, mate. And um, I wonder how many people know that. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I think we've got to get better at how we sell ourselves. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think we can. I absolutely think we can. Let me play devil's advocate for a moment. When Mr. Albanese uh, had one of his first conversations about healthcare, he was, he was loath to talk about larger amounts of money. Could it be that we need to make money work smarter? So I think there are great opportunities for us to maybe think smarter about the way in which we uh, we move forward and provide our care and support. And I think partly that's about, well, do we need more super clinics? Well, no, we don't. So there's money there that was allocated that could easily be reallocated into a redesign of general practice so that, you know, the business model absolutely needs to be sustainable. And we need to make sure that we're Growing our future generation of GPs, we need to make this an exciting opportunity for them to consider. We need to sell that to them when they're in med school or even before. We need to make sure their training's really awesome and we need to make sure that we make business opportunities attractive. We need GPs considering owning and, and starting and you know moving forward their own businesses because even for those GPs who don't decide to do that, they need somewhere to work, mate. And so we've got to look at how we do this. We've got to make sure that we've got people on the ground in you know, smaller country towns. And it's all sorts of models. And I, I'm not going to be so presumptuous as to suggest what they might be. I think that we need to take these to the membership. So I think what you're saying is absolutely true. If we want to lead out of this darkness that we're facing, the kindergarten maths here is that we're a dying breed. We've got to do something to reignite the passion in our belly to make sure that our communities continue to get the very best of care. And I see that every day of the week. So how do we make that work? And I think part of it is making sure that we um, redesign general practice so it works in our individual communities, that um, when we do uh, First Nations health in some of those more rural areas and, and regional um, uh, remote areas, that we, we look for other opportunities. But we need to make this affordable and a career worth chasing, not just because we do it from our heart. You know, you've got to make it worthwhile, these people going out to these communities. We often put our overseas trained doctors, our IMGs go out there with their families. They go into our most vulnerable communities, remote communities, not necessarily understanding how the Medicare system works. They don't necessarily have English as their first language. And, you know, they've got issues about whether their air conditioning works and whether the kids are okay at school and all of these sorts of things. And is it any wonder why they do their five years and leave and the community has to start again? There are absolutely, as you say, some great opportunities to think smarter about the way we do. You know, 
we've been trying to do this. I mean, you know, that's the bonus of mentors and uh, and the networking that I've been involved in over the last 20 years is to understand, you know, the, the push for regional, rural, remote recruitment, retention. How do we get people out there? How do we create jobs for their spouses and the likes? How do we make sure their education for the kids is good? And it's difficult when you've got young families because it makes sense that sooner or later you either have to move out of town or send the kids off to, uh, off to boarding school. Some food for thought there and uh, re-engagement with the profession, getting the fire in the belly again, seizing opportunities. Whoever takes on that presidency challenge will certainly have to grab those challenges by the horn. Thanks for joining us, Brad, on The Tea Room. Thanks, Francis. Yalu. <laughs> Thank you. That was Dr. Brad Murphy talking to The Tea Room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favorite podcast player and subscribe and leave us a review if you like. And if you have any news tips or you want to chat, you can email me at francis at medicalrepublic.com.au. That's Francis, spelt with an I. The Tea Room is a production by the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views of general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>